From Treatment Advocacy Center, this is Make Them Hear You, a podcast to uplift the stories and voices of families of color affected by severe mental illness. I'm Sabah Mohammed, Senior Legislative and Policy Counsel and inaugural DJ Jaffe Advocate. Welcome. What's up, advocates? Welcome to today's episode of Make Them Hear You, Emotionally Perfect, When Treatment Looks Like Punishment. Today, we will unpack what happens when a person in psychosis gets caught up in the criminal justice system. In theory, our courts are supposed to be capable of acknowledging the role that mental illness can have in driving a person's behavior and whether criminal intent really existed when an alleged crime occurred. We're going to explore whether it really does that. And then I'd like to propose that we consider making restorative justice available for people with a diagnosis of severe mental illness as perhaps an alternative with the potential to better meet the needs of victims, society, and people whose actions were caused by psychosis. The things we know about healing, rehabilitation, and recovery are largely missing from state psychiatric hospitals, jails, and prisons. Things like disconnection from community, lack of self-determination, lockdown, solitary confinement are commonplace in these institutions. We say we take these measures in the name of safety, that they are necessary and rooted in justice. But our society understanding of safety and justice often lends itself to simple punishment without nuance. What does that mean for individuals with a diagnosis of severe or serious mental illness who encounter the criminal system? Let's walk through when and how mental illness is supposed to be considered by our criminal courts. First, a person who appears to be unable to assist with their defense should be evaluated for competency. In the legal world, this is a pretty low bar. Do they understand the basics of what's going on in court, who the players are, and can they therefore help their lawyer, often a public defender like I was, defend the case? After being evaluated, a person who is not competent needs to be restored to competency. A lot of people mistake this for treatment because it usually means being hospitalized as a forensic patient and given medication. But competency reservation is not about treatment. It's about getting the person just well enough to continue the prosecution so the case can go forward. In theory, the next issue is whether the person was, at the time of the offense, not guilty by reason of insanity. Insanity, by the way, is a legal term, not a medical one. And I have to tell you, as a public defender, that this defense is only a realistic option for very serious crimes. It's tough to advise a person charged with a misdemeanor that carries no jail time that it's a good idea to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, or NGRI for shorthand, when the alternative is pleading guilty and getting time served and a fine. For defendants who plead not guilty by reason of insanity, it's also important to know that the defense is almost never successful. But say you succeed and your client is found not guilty by reason of insanity or NGRI. Do you know what happens next? Well, in theory, what happens next is treatment. This is, after all, not a criminal, not guilty because of insanity. So obviously, what should come next is treatment with the goal of returning the person to the community, restored to mental health, and ready to get back to their life. Right? Today, we will be speaking to Alachi Tiffany Ito about her experiences with the criminal and mental health system. 
Our advocacy tool is restorative justice with a little help from noted civil rights advocate, Fania Davis, who wrote the little book of restorative justice. What is restorative justice? And can it be used to bring healing to the place where severe mental illness, race, and criminal justice meet? Our expert is Ellie Savitt, a Washtenaw County prosecutor who uses restorative justice practices to do just that, bring justice to the community he serves. But before we get there, let's hear from Malachi about her experience, because it is really an eye-opening story about what our forensic psychiatry treatment system looks like, even when it functions the way it's supposed to. My name is Alachi Tiffany Ito. How do I describe myself? I would say that I'm a survivor. Alachi is a consummate survivor. From her family's Nigerian roots to her own experiences planting seeds to achieve the elusive American dream, she thrives. Yet no matter how well she does, her experience with the criminal system looms large. For her, there is no restorative justice. It's rehabilitation or else. Tell me and the listeners about O'Hare in your own way. Sure. Let me back all the way up. I had been diagnosed bipolar disorder at 19. I was at Boston University when I had my first symptoms of illness. I had always grown up in like a very secure and small environment. Went to private school. This is not a novel experience, but was one of a few Black people in the class as many of our sisters and brothers kind of go through as well. So I went to college and started to have that first break, but I didn't shift out from reality. I was still okay. to reality. My initial symptoms were auditory hallucinations. I would say that was the chief symptom that really riddled me day in and day out. Immediately, I left Boston to get help. I got treatment, tried medication, had some of the best treatment out there, but it was really hard to pinpoint medication, which is hard for so many of us. So like the idea was like to just live with it, which right. is so wrong today. And I hope people listening to this can know that they can manage psychosis to the point where like they are no longer hearing things. Right. It can happen with the right medication. I would say that without medication, it would be really hard to achieve. Right. That's just my personal experience. I think at that time, my shame about my mental illness was at its highest point, right? Mm. I did take the medication and to seek help, but I wasn't taking what I take now to really okay. manage it, right? Like I was just kind of like going through the motions. And sometimes if you have a psychiatrist that just kind of goes through the motions with you, there's not a whole lot of progress to right. achieve. So like you have to be very assertive about going through those medications and finding something that works for you. I know it won't happen for everyone, but if you can pinpoint what's best for you, it can change your life. I found myself hallucinating and disconnected from reality. And it was so, it's so interesting. And every time I think about that day, it's almost like you discover some new detail mm. because there are days where like it, it's completely black, like that memory is completely black, but there are other days where you're just like, wow, yeah, like mm. I was running through Chicago thinking we were in a musical and it was like almost some little voice inside of me was saying, hey, something's wrong, something's wrong, right? And so like when I would hear that little kind of 
intuition, I tried to grasp it. I remember getting into a cab and saying, can you take me to the hospital? This was before we had any instant mental health interaction or like 988. 988 rolled out all across the country in July of 2022 as a means to divert mental health calls away from 911. The plan is to get closer to a police-free response for suicide prevention and mental health crisis. When our loved ones are in crisis, community resources must be a phone call away. And the cab driver would say, which hospital? Then you would get a new hallucination and jump out of the cab and just go chase whatever musical or theme of the hallucination. This massive mania, euphoria and hallucination. So I found myself at O'Hare. And it's so funny because when I was released from the hospital, I went and took a look at my Google location history, right? Oh, wow. Okay. And for that day, like the span of days when I was wandering the streets in psychosis, it's just me taking the blue line to O'Hare and taking it back into downtown Chicago, back again to O'Hare and back to downtown Chicago, because it was almost like I was trying to go home to my family. Wow. But I couldn't follow through on the act of purchasing a ticket and getting on the plane because I was having those hallucinations and delusions, right? When we talk about community resources and severe mental illness, we still need to have tough conversations about real-life access points for individuals too sick to volunteer for services. Waiting for Alachi to choose when she wasn't capable of choice was community negligence and a direct line to police engagement. Those who advocate for no intervention or coercion ever are doing so because of the asylum sins of the past, and it makes sense. However, rarely are real-life tools to prevent someone having an experience like Olachi's from reaching the airport in the first place. Our only resource is waiting for Olachi to fall into crisis. At O'Hare, I start to hallucinate gunshots, and I'm hearing what sounds like, okay, we're having a mass shooting. We're all going to get shot unless we get to a safe place. And I see a young mother and her child, and I think to myself, oh my God, I've got to help these people get to safety, get to their departure gate, or get wherever. We're facing something imminent and dangerous was the delusion. I picked up the small child to help them get to where they were going. After days of being trapped in psychosis, riding back and forth on the train in response to delusions, Alachi tried to rescue a child from a major terrorist threat at O'Hare International Airport, or Olachi committed felony kidnap. I took a few steps and the mother took the child back from me. So the whole exchange from me picking up the child to the mother taking the child back, maybe 22, 25 seconds. In a moment of panic, those seconds to any parent or caregiver would feel like a lifetime came out in court and I didn't get far. Everyone was safe at the end and I went on my way. I went to, to a parent or caregiver, would it ever matter that everyone was safe? I went to Starbucks afterwards and I forgot what happened because I was just hallucinating and having delusions. And a new delusion would take place. I don't know if it's a fugue state and it was just this fuzziness, this disjointed perception of life, right? Like okay. everything was kind of, everything was upside down. 
Alachi had no intention to cause harm. Individuals diagnosed with serious and severe mental illness experiencing a psychotic episode may not be able to understand the reality of their surroundings. They may not have control of their actions. Delusions, hallucinations, and other symptoms can cause the person to act in ways they never, ever would. Several cops came to me and they put me in handcuffs. I did not know what happened or why I was in jail for several months while I was in jail. In those several months, your parents had already contacted yes, uh, and yes, the state's they were attorney. All over it. They were all over it. And so that, yeah, that's the part that just makes no sense because you had a diagnosis, you had medication. They could have gotten that to you in hours, but you mm-hmm. were just left as if none of that were true for several months. Within 24 hours of Alachi's arrest, her parents had already begun to advocate. They made jail officials aware of their daughter's history, diagnosis, and medication. But for several months, Alachi languished unmedicated and untreated for something she didn't understand and had no control over. What part of justice was served by keeping Alachi from treatment? My mom had to campaign that I get to the newly built mental health part of the Cook County Jail, right? So Cook County said to themselves, wow, mental health is really such a problem. We're going to build a new jail for them. And <laughs> um, I was I'm embarrassed the- <laughs> for us. My goodness. And I'm, I'm like a lawyer. I'm part of this, this mess. Yeah. So I was waiting there while I was waiting trial, like waiting for trial. I was there for a year waiting for trial. They gave me like random medications that I had had before. But I would say over the year I was there, I probably spoke to a psychiatrist once or twice. Connection to resources and treatment is vital for surviving mental illness. Alachi is privileged to have a family with a support system. Even though they were able to advocate for her, Alachi was untreated for seven months, which exposes her to psychosis-related brain deterioration. Resources are cut off at the moment of incarceration. Individuals lose benefits, housing, and jobs. It creates a debt that extends to family members who come to the aid of their sick loved ones. From personal experience, every time my loved one was incarcerated, someone in the family overextended themselves to keep that loved one afloat. After two decades of this, our collective family credit, savings, and spending power has been compromised. So is this really giving people treatment? I'm not quite sure, but I was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity. In a lot of ways, Alachi realizes that she was lucky to escape a felony conviction for the incident. Not because the system isn't supposed to yield this result, but because of how infrequently people are successful in pursuing a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. She pretty quickly found that the experience of receiving treatment in a forensic hospital was not as therapeutically oriented as one might assume. When you're a part of the criminal justice system for mental illness, you become so heavily defined by it Mm. within those realms. And you almost forget, nor do you ever really have the chance, if you're still in that criminal justice system, to just appreciate any side of you that has nothing to do with your diagnosis. In the mental health system, and, and this is a system I wish to describe, a system that is different from 
the everyday Americans seeking mental health help in the traditional mental health systems. Yes, those places have their challenges as well, but the mental health system that exists inside of the criminal justice system is very, very different. And in that system, they are rarely trying to help you realize anything greater than your mental illness, unfortunately. Mm. If you try to do that, it's immediately perceived as you putting distance between yourself and your illness and not accepting it, right? This is as good a place as any to talk about what exactly restorative justice is and why we should really try to find ways to use it for people like Alachi, whose alleged crimes are the product of psychosis. In our traditional approach to criminal justice, crime is between the individual and the state. Restorative justice is a broad term that refers to alternative approaches to criminal justice. It has come to mean any program in any system of criminal law that addresses harm between individuals, a victim, a justice-involved person, and the community come together to resolve the criminal incident. All three are necessary parts of the model, but restorative justice only begins with the victim's approval. In so many ways, what could be a better case for employing restorative justice than a case like Alachi's? Wouldn't the mother of the child benefit from understanding that Alachi had never intended to harm anyone? If she was not comfortable participating, she could just say no, because the victim's approval is mandatory to proceed. Wouldn't Alachi benefit from being able to explain what happened? but also to hear from this stranger about what the experience had been like from her perspective. And what about the community? Don't we all benefit from allowing two members of our community to be reconciled with one another? But there's one major problem when trying to use a restorative justice program for Alachi. The emphasis these programs typically place on taking responsibility for the crime. Yeah. So you find first that you do have to accept it. Mm -hmm. And... When something transpires and it is significant enough to have you land in jail or land in a state hospital system, you really kind of take a step back, right? And you say, what the hell happened here? Right. You have to. And I think that's the only way that you can remedy some of the past and maybe have that kind of restorative justice if the person's willing to put in the work. Lack of insight and psychosis can create obstacles to responsibility, a key element of restorative justice. Because of the symptoms of serious and severe mental illness, there are times when a justice-involved person will not know what happened. Psychosis, hallucinations, and delusions can take over reality, including memory, will, intention, and volition. If a person is affected by a lack of insight, or, like Alachi, still in psychosis while incarcerated, they would be unable to advocate for themselves for a restorative justice approach to their case. Psychosis and access to mental illness resources is dismissed by medical professionals and overlooked by advocates well enough to volunteer for resources. So how can Alachi alone reconcile psychosis when her community's lack of preventative resources for serious mental illness is also a part of what the hell happened. I put in the work, you know, I I had just got to say, because 
in these systems, you have a lot of people that maybe enter it in similar circumstances, but refuse to accept that they have a mental illness. And in a place like a state hospital system, but in that system, you had a lot of people that maybe didn't accept that illness. And because of that, they would never be able to leave. It's a catch-22. A plea of not guilty by reason of insanity is fundamentally at odds with accepting full responsibility for the alleged crime, especially in a case like Alachi's, where she was accepting treatment, but the treatment didn't work to prevent psychosis. Or what about people experiencing a first episode of psychosis? On the one hand, we know that people don't choose to develop schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but part of us, the bigger part, still wants to assign blame and demand accountability and puts that ahead of wanting to heal and reintegrate people who, if our treatment system had been better, would likely never have done whatever they did to get arrested. This is one of the primary reasons that Treatment Advocacy Center places such a focus on providing education about anosognosia, the term that describes the inability to perceive one's own illness, no matter how evident the symptoms might be to someone else. Statistics show that of the 8.8 million Americans diagnosed with severe mental illness, 4.2 million go untreated, largely because of anosognosia. And I can't stress this enough. This is not denial. It's knowing. For example, my loved one knew that his skin was covered with scales. He knew that our mother was no longer his mother, and it was something wrong with us for thinking it was mental illness. He wasn't refusing treatment. There was no logical reason in the world for him to engage in it. Your ability to have insight, is that something that can be worked for? Is it a privilege? Is it luck? Is it timing? Is there anything you've been able to tap into to go this was needed? Is it just individualized? What is it? I would say it's all of those things that ah, you mentioned. Okay. And I would say what you guys deal with when it comes to the diagnosis of someone who's unable to have that insight is absolutely cutting edge. And state hospital systems don't focus on the cutting edge, right? So wow. you go you go into that system and it is the psychiatry of the 70s. One of the biggest things you learn as a 1L law student in criminal law is that a crime must consist of two necessary parts, the bad act and the guilty mind. It's the reason that an accidental death doesn't get charged as a murder, even if there was negligence involved. According to the courts, there must be a mental element to the act of any crime. We call this mens rea, or a guilty mind. The act is not culpable unless the mind is guilty. Our justice system demands a person only be convicted and punished if fully responsible for the crime. So all of its actors from like the bottom person to the top are used to wanting you to accept some level of criminality, which wow. I, I just could not do, even though I'll never get a chance to apologize. And I use that the language like the incident, the event, the crime it was a crime. Well, um, I would push back there because in the real textbook world of law, uh -huh. without the mens rea, there's no crime. Prison is used to manage marginalized populations, especially people of color and individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. And Olachi represents both of those groups. 
Fania Davis reports that black women make up 13% of the U.S. female population, but represent 30% of incarcerated women. Treatment Advocacy Center reports that there are more individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness incarcerated than in hospitals. So as a black woman with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, Olachi now represents three marginalized identities. If she's to have any justice at all, it must be restorative justice. Crime, and right. and we, we don't want to accept that part as these people who want punishment. So I, I believe I mean, you're right, but I'm, unfortunately I, I'm conditioned. I know. To like, yeah. They have told and me to, you know. You, you become able people in the rest of the world. You become who we tell you right. you are. I was a public defender and I feel like it's the justice of, <laughs> I feel like it's the justice of the 1800s in our courtrooms right now. Absolutely. In that hospital, they kind of just bundled everyone together. Mm, You know, everyone was treated the same way. And like it was if someone did something really extreme, they viewed it as us all doing something really extreme. Wow. Okay. This is something that I'm not sure everyone gets about forensic psychiatric hospitals. You can be in one because you are being evaluated for competency, because you are being restored to competency. Because you are in GRI or because you were convicted of a crime and were sick enough to be hospitalized for treatment. These are all very different legal statuses, but it seems that everyone is seen the same way without respect to their individual situation. This is symbolic of Alachi's rehabilitation or else experience. She needed collaboration, belonging, and individualized care, but instead she was further criminalized. Prosecutor Ellie Savitt knows that this one-size-fits-all treatment does not serve justice. So coming into this, you're very young to be doing this work and having this outlook in sort of a, I consider the justice system to be just this really conservative, oppressive dinosaur. And what was your path from school teacher to justice reformer? It is not a traditional path. So my first job out of college was as a teacher in the New York City public schools. I taught eighth grade U.S. history to both general education and special education students. And I usually start there because it's not like I was teaching and I was like, you know, gosh, I've got to be a prosecutor now. But when I was a teacher, I had kids who were justice involved. I had kids whose families were justice involved. And... I saw, in many cases, the intergenerational effect of our criminal legal system on communities and families and children. I then went to law school, and you know, I never intended to be a prosecutor. My passion was for civil rights, for public interest work. So I went to law school, and I started my career off clerking for a couple of federal judges. And then I was in private practice for a little while. And during that time, I, I did some pro bono work. I, I represented criminal defendants up on appeal. I represented folks in immigration proceedings, which some of them were facing deportation because of an old conviction. So I saw some things that are adjacent to the justice system there. And then I had the tremendous opportunity to work on the U.S. Supreme Court for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And one of the things that you do as a law clerk when you're on the Supreme Court is you're really the first eyes on every single petition 
that's coming into the court for review. So you really get a 30,000-foot view of the justice system. And the truth of the matter is, the vast majority of those petitions did not present any legal issue that were appropriate for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear, because there was no legal issue with what had been done. But a great portion of them did involve some disturbing facts. Right. The reason that there was no legal issue was precisely because you grant prosecutors broad authority, broad discretion. And it was the way that they were exercising discretion in a lot of those cases that may not have been in the interest of justice, may not have been rehabilitative, may not have been restorative. But there was no legal problem with how they were doing it. It was just sort of part and parcel with prosecutorial discretion. At the same time, during that year, I read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow is a New York Times bestseller that, for me, is the perfect illustration of how the criminal system has served as a counter-movement for Black equity. That book really changed my perspective on things and crystallized a lot of the stuff that I've been seeing, combined with seeing all these petitions flooding into the court that I was reading every day. Because what that book said is, look, we have recreated a two-tiered system in the United States of America that's reminiscent of Jim Crow. Because during Jim Crow, what do we do? We said as a nation that Black people in the South, by law in the South, right, uh, didn't have the same opportunities for housing, for jobs, for educational opportunities. And we formally got rid of that. But we recreated it through our criminal legal system because by most estimates, A black person is about five or six times more likely to come into the criminal legal system as a white person. And when you saddle people with a felony record, what do we prevent people from getting, right? It's jobs. It's housing. It's educational opportunities. The very same thing that black people were denied in the Jim Crow South. So that really helped crystallize a lot of my thinking, too. If it is the case that being swept up in the criminal justice system is a fact of life, for a vastly disproportionate number of people of color, and also for people with severe mental illnesses, we are all but guaranteeing that both populations, and especially those who fall into both categories, are going to have a hard time regaining the life they had before being criminalized. The criminal justice system has sticky fingers, even when your verdict is not guilty by reason of insanity. Once you encounter the criminal and mental health system, you face obstacles to the very things Black people fought so hard for, like housing, jobs, education, voting rights, community, the very things that create freedom and quality of life for everyone else. Alachi's obstacles were apparent in the bar set for her release. Usually the standard was like, oh, you're going to stay for 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And what happens is the patient usually ends up recovering within that first year, you know, first two years. If someone's fully engaged in the therapy and treatment, they will usually recover. You're going through some medication changes and and troubleshooting. But to those people in that system, when you have recovered, it means almost nothing. Now, when you say those people in the system, are we talking about everybody down to the non-credentialed all the way to the most doctored psychiatrist? They all think... Yes. There was like a culture set there, Ah, right? A culture. Okay. There was a culture set there where they were used to just warehousing people. Once you recovered, 
they wanted you to prove to them your stability and that you wouldn't crack. And I remember one psychiatrist said to me, you have to be 100% emotionally perfect to leave this place. Who is emotionally perfect? In her book, The Little Book of Restorative Justice, Fania Davis reports that incarceration alone has grave consequences. Imprisonment for one year can take up to two years off of someone's lifespan. It reduces annual wages by 40%. More than 6 million currently or formerly incarcerated persons are discriminated against as far as employment, housing, access to education, public benefits, or denied the right to vote. If you've experienced severe mental illness without incarceration, that list may sound familiar. Those are the same discriminations reserved for all marginalized people. I was sent to a state hospital. In the beginning, when you get there, they said, yes, once you recover, of course, we'll discuss next steps to get you home. And unfortunately, that's a trap. They don't intend to get you home or they just don't take seriously that you can recover? They don't intend to get you home and they won't let you know that you're not going to go home until several months into it. Mm. So they will kind of create it like a normal hospital, but mm-hmm. it's it's not a normal hospital. Of course, it's, it's not prison by any means. We wore our own clothes. We had takeout twice a month. But the reality is you are sequestered from society for quite a long time. I come from a family of many justice-involved people. I know incarceration when I hear it. I know that what Olachi explains may be a hospital experience, but it sounds more like punishment than treatment. It's just a different kind of prison when I hear you talk about (laughs) it. There just needs to be more for us to do that makes sense, that is actually treatment, not build, let's build another jail. That's so, (laughs) we're so weird. I (laughs) I wanna know why. Treatment Advocacy Center has taken more than 25 years just to get this law that says, hey, if we're going to involuntarily commit someone, let's actually do an evaluation. Let's actually make a step-down service possible. And it's like, why should we have to argue state by state for the next 25 years? This podcast experience has taught me a lot about stigma and storytelling. It has taught me about my own status quo thinking. I have two loved ones diagnosed with serious or severe mental illness. I used a lot of time advocating to get them well enough to assimilate to society and have an experience that looked like mine, when in reality, it's society that needs to create access for them and accept the story and the lived experiences they have as equal. We don't give a damn about changing the system. Mm -hmm. We have decided you did something bad and we don't ever want to have complicated feelings. We want to hate you and then move you over there. And I don't know how to get us out of our way. I'm like, we love punishment so much. What is that? I'm. (laughs) What is that? Still trying to figure it out. The legal justification for punishment can be found in the five pillars of justice. Retribution, rehabilitation, deterrence, incapacitation, and restoration. But where are the pillars of prevention, healing, zero recidivism, and redemption? I've never seen just like a nation that enjoys vengeance so much. And we have built a system like for vengeance. And yes, there are horrific things that do happen. Horrific things do happen. Alachi never downplayed the seriousness of what happened. But isn't it important to consider 
the cause of the incident. If we actually are interested in preventing harm, it matters that Alachi thought she was rescuing a civilian from a terrorist attack and not trying to run off with someone's child. Restorative justice advocates argue that without addressing why the harm was caused, our traditional model of justice is simply punitive and vengeful. Maybe it's time that we make an effort to adapt traditional concepts of restorative justice to include people who cause harm because of psychosis, not bad intent. I felt like in my case, and like I always tread carefully when I say this, but I mean, with no criminal history, I was working at a well-known company down the street. I had a clear mental illness and history of it. I had been managing bipolar disorder. And so for this one event, mm-hmm. um, which of course I have incredible remorse for, and I'm, I'm very lucky that no one was harmed, but you know, I've spent a lot of time just kind of paying for that. What did Alachi owe the victim and the community? If a debt was created, why did it involve so many layers of punishment and non-treatment? Since 2013, restorative justice organizations have taken a closer look at the fact that Black and Brown people are often left out of the practice. But if restorative justice advocates truly seek to elevate the voices of the survivors, they must take into account that individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness are also being left out of the practice. Fania Davis states that restorative justice views a vengeful and punitive response to harm as unacceptable because on a social level, it sets into motion a negative feedback loop of violence and counterviolence. That stance must include severe mental illness and the understanding that the person responsible for harm also a victim. And that means the community, including the medical system, must also take responsibility. And in those cases, the victim may also need to be educated on the reality of severe mental illness and psychosis. I took a dinner table survey and I I told them about the event that happened with you. And all the parents said, had someone told me she was ill, I would not have wanted her incarcerated. I would have wanted her to get help. And that's just my dinner table survey. It was a a group of 10 people. A good survey. (laughs) It's a good survey. You know, even within my own family, I remember I had a conversation with a family member when I came back and I said, because I love my nieces and nephews Mm -hmm. so much. And I often think about how I would feel if this happened to them. Right. And I know that I'd be fiery and angry in the beginning. And my family member said to me, you know, there would be one way you feel when it's happening. Mm hmm. And there would be another way that you feel when you find out that person had a mental illness. When it comes to severe mental illness and preventable tragedies, U.S. communities consistently fail to provide timely and effective wraparound services for those too sick to volunteer for treatment. Instead, we wait until our loved ones deteriorate to crisis and their only option is police. I wanted to hear more from Ellie Sabat on how all of this our failed mental health system, racial disparities in treatment access and community resources, the overcriminalization of both populations, and the many ways in which our criminal justice system is unequipped to be flexible, come together to create an unjust and punishment-oriented system for people like Alachi and for the many other families we hear from every day in our work. I would love to go back to Michelle Alexander's book, 
and mm-hmm. the recreation of Jim Crow through the judicial system. And just talk a little bit about, and if you agree, we have recreated the closed asylums through the judicial system and through our homelessness. And in that same vein of we just closed one institution to start another, and now we have people trapped in this cycle. How do you respond to that? And what has been your experience with mental illness in the courtroom? One of the most troubling things that we do as a society is we ignore issues that are percolating. Uh, substance use, mm. mental health, yeah. behavioral health issues, until it is too late, until something really bad has happened. And then we say, well, it's up to the criminal legal system to respond. I just really abhor that model, quite frankly, because something comes across our desk, uh, you know, a, a crime that's a manifestation of, of mental illness, let's even say a serious crime. Mm-hmm. And by the time, like, institutionally, the prosecutor's office, the criminal legal system is involved, we've all failed. And I'm not just saying, like, the court system has failed. I'm saying we failed as a community because something bad happened. We failed to address a mental health issue, a substance use issue, behavioral health issue, whatever is going on, trauma-related issue. And as a result, we let something bad happen. And then the criminal legal system is just, like, straight-up reactive. We're saying, okay, you did this bad thing, we're prosecuting you, you're going to go to trial, everything like that, and, and you can end up in jail, in prison, maybe inpatient somewhere, although frankly, even that in Michigan, we have really limited options around that because we have, dating back in the 90s, not invested in our mental health system. Ellie is describing Detroit, Michigan, Alachi, Chicago, Illinois, my family, Atlanta, Georgia, and every call made to the Treatment Advocacy Center from across the country, the same question, why haven't we invested in our mental health system. And it's so counterproductive. So what I see a need to do is really invest and prioritize in addressing mental illness, addressing behavioral health. The first time they come on people's radars, which, and when I say people, I don't even necessarily mean the police or the prosecutors or anything like that. If we can do it short of the criminal legal system, so much the better. But we are not doing anybody any good. We know we aren't doing anybody any good. Yet the system remains. The status quo gets to tell the story of fear and safety in the name of justice. We get to write the narrative that restorative justice is too expensive, too far-reaching, too radical. In our dismissal of the most vulnerable in our community, we reveal how emotionally imperfect we are. I hope in 50 years, the majority of people will be outraged that we marginalize mental illness isolated our neighbors, and created barriers to their treatment. But if it's anything like our past-present, the status quo narrative will insist that we somehow were innocent, products of our time, and we just didn't know better. The person who's suffering from mental illness, the person who's suffering from substance abuse, or the people that run the risk of being harmed by them by just waiting until something bad happens and saying, okay, well, now we're going to step in. Now we're going to address it. We've already let, as a, as a society, yeah. the thing that we fear happen, and then we take steps to address it, and it just does not make sense. We could invest in prevention and care. Instead, we just let the thing happen that we fear. But Alachi's event is not the actual sum of our fear. Our fear is of the horrific, the evil, not the unintentional and preventable. Yes, intentional, horrific things happen. Things that we cannot plan for. 
but mental illness is not one of them. Illness is normal, something we can plan for, treat, and address, yet we intentionally fail to do so. Now, this is something that, of course, is not solely within the prosecutors, or even primarily within the prosecutors' control. But it's really where I see a big disconnect between a lot of the the rhetoric around what we want to build, like safer, healthier communities, everything like that, and what we're actually investing in and how we're addressing these issues. In our proposal for restorative justice, the justice-involved person is also a victim because the community is responsible for failing to address basic mental illness infrastructure. For example, since 988 has been implemented, I've had to call the crisis hotline for a loved one while in psychosis. I live in Georgia, but called from my 212 cell phone number. It wasn't until the intake was near complete that the social worker realized that I had been routed to a New York City crisis response team. Precious minutes were wasted figuring out that mistake. Then, after that, we had to locate someone else's phone to make the call. If a community hasn't covered the basics, how can someone with a diagnosis of severe mental illness be expected to shoulder the blame for a very predictable bad outcome? I think that when I was in the hospital, it wasn't always this out in the open, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is a level of shame that you have when something like this happens. And even more so when it's something that you've never done before or didn't intend to do. I feel like people that actually have premeditated any kind of like criminality, it's a different feeling they have when they're put away for it. But when something happens simply because of your mental illness, there's that level of shame there that mm. it's like, I could not control this and now I'm here. And so during the time I was in the hospital, I learned how to control it. That was step one. Step two was realizing that the place I was in and their shame, even the shame that they wanted me to hold or mm. lack of forgiveness that they had about things that had happened. And that was not the real world. I started to tell myself that when I was in the hospital, because like that is a criminal justice realm. You're doing a beautiful job of fighting that because we do have a lack of forgiveness. I love how you put that. That was not the real world. Can you please just unpack that a little bit for me? Like, yes. how did you get that clarity? Yeah. Where I am is not the real world because I don't know. I think about that. I'm like, how long would it take me to stay me, locked away? I don't know. So listen, I was very lucky. I was incredibly lucky, right? Because not only did I have an education, but I had my family, mm. right? So it was easy to see that the world inside of there was upside down. Like stranger um, things, definitely. Some people that maybe like if they didn't have family, putting them on the right path and saying, no, don't listen to that, which my family had to do often. Don't listen to this. Don't listen to that person. Don't even talk to that person anymore, mm, right? Okay. So like that was like the emotional support I was given while I was in there. Also, again, having like that pro bono lawyer and listening to you listen to that person. Yeah. Okay. That's who you listen to. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, it is not the therapeutic world that they try to tell you it will be. 
So basically I had those things while I was inside and I think it took a lot for me to build any kind of esteem again. Okay. But like when I realized that that was not the real world, I started to mentally kind of just create boundaries to just what kind of person they wanted me to evolve into. Right. Okay. Unfortunately, like if someone didn't have family to kind of validate them over the phone and and walk them through their dreams and tell them, hey, you can still do it. You can still be someone. You would leave there heavily influenced by who they told you you were. Ah, I can understand that. Because, you know? yeah, it's it's like a, and you would say the wrong yourself, programming. You would say, like, I'll never apply for a job. I will never get it. Oh. Right? So something happened where... The lawyer I have now, who is absolutely amazing, he was able to help me get home to my family. Ah, that's awesome. That has been the single most incredible, positive, and transformative thing to happen to me since O'Hare. That's wonderful. So so that was the only thing that made human sense. Mm. Because I was able to come home. I was able to every day be in direct contact, get that contact high from people that Hmm. loved you. They encouraged me to go get my driver's license. I had a boatload of of anxiety. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And I still went through it. I got the license. They encouraged me to, okay, go get a part-time job. I had a boatload of anxiety, especially when thinking who's going to Google me or who's going to do this and who's going to do that. But you know what I did? Like I made sure I had an answer for those questions. And lo and behold, the questions rarely came up. Okay. Okay. Then I went for the bigger job. This was the career move, the, the job. And I won't mention who it's with, but I work for an investment firm now. And to get that position, you had to pass a series seven. I went through the onboarding process, huge, huge anxiety. Yeah. And yes, in this case, it did come up and I was asked about it, but I had the preparation of who I was, what I was going to say, what happened, how it affects me now and who I want to be in the future. And I found that a huge financial institution was more compassionate than the criminal justice system. Harm resulting from untreated or undertreated severe mental illness starts with neglect. The medical system has abandoned our loved ones. The police respond because unlike the medical system, they can't refuse a mental health crisis call. In our imagination of community, doctors and police are partners. For Alachi, creating partnership while in the hospital was not always welcomed. I hate this term. I think there has been some trouble with this term, but I think this was like a clear injustice to what goes on in there. I have something, and I don't know if we have a new term for it. I'm open to new terms, like no hate, no smoke on this side, but I have been called high-functioning. Yeah. That alone, I was able to talk to the doctor and like create a plan and micromanage him. Okay. And my family was able to micromanage that person as well. The doctor in the, you want to call it state hospital. It's an asylum. It's still there. And so if you had someone who like didn't present with those communication skills, assertiveness, utilizing resources, planning strategy for, Hey, I've recovered this medication works. What happens next? 
just even asking that question, if someone was not able to do that, they'd be there longer. Why? They'd be there longer. And if they didn't have family, that person could just sit in the corner and collect dust for mm, years. That's period. tough to hear because that happens to a lot of our loved ones. Unfortunately. And I know that- Especially the forensic, cutting, yeah. But that is the reality. Did you get any understanding of why those, is it just a job? Like, why would a psychiatrist be there allowing this? It is just a job and it is a good paying job mm. for many of the psychiatrists that are there. So to keep that good paying job, like I'm going to adapt and render whatever culture set is there. They would talk to the state's attorneys. Mm -hmm. And only, like, was your lawyer, whether public defender or private lawyer, that was, like, secondary to them. They would check with the state first and what they wanted to do. And, of course, I wasn't privy to every conversation, but this was the way it worked, like, when it was expressed to me. And when I would listen to the stories of other people, it just functioned to keep people there. They said, you would stay longer than someone who had meant to do what they were doing and, like, went to prison. You were bound yeah, to stay. Yeah, that's really upsetting. And the culture, it's like we said, oh, let's empty the asylums. Let's stop the asylums and do nothing. And what you get is an asylum when you do right. nothing. And we keep doing that same model over and over. I mean, most of it is bundled under this concept of public safety. Right. Yes. Which is a valid evaluation, I would say. Right. If we but, had a handle on what public safety was. Right. I think people here, I'm a public defender, and they're like, how could you defend those people? I'm like, people who didn't pay yeah. their car insurance bill, people, right. who, people who didn't make a complete stop at a red light, stuff right. that you're going to do in your life. Like, that's, right. that's who right. I'm defending. When I was a public defender, most of my clients were criminalized. They weren't evil career criminals. They were everyday people caught on their worst day with a lack of access to resources. When we go upstream, everyday people in poor circumstances with limited access to resources make up our criminal system. And it's something the status quo takes for granted, like credit scores, insurance, affordable housing, transportation. I've also had to represent the clients that we fear, the legitimate evil we see in society murderers and abusers. Those cases should not dictate our entire justice framework. Most importantly, they should not dictate our imaginations and turn potential rehabilitation and redemption into trauma. Right, you right. Know, I feel like it also should be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. This case-by-case -case basis is something Ellie Savitt also recognizes and believes should start with the most humanizing narrative possible. If my mother was involved in the criminal legal system, either as a defendant or as a victim, I would hope that all the actors involved, including the prosecutor, would treat that story, that individualized human story that brought her in there, with the individualized care and attention that it deserved, not to say, well, you know, we're running this sort of assembly line yeah. process, and it's going to be a one-size-fits-all approach to what we're doing. And everybody deserves that. So in terms of addressing some of these underlying issues, we really are working with our assistant prosecutors who have done a great job at thinking holistically and thinking differently about what we can do to get somebody off the path that they're on. 
sometimes that means diversionary opportunity, either through a problem-solving course or indeed, we, you know, we got a pre-plea diversion program where you can get these services without even pleading guilty to a crime and the case is dismissed at the end of it if you do everything you're supposed to be doing, right? Sometimes the truth of the matter is we've reached a point later on down the line where somebody does need to be separated from the community for a while because they are posing an imminent threat to public safety. And what we're trying to look at there is, okay, what's the best place for them to go? Where's the best place for them to go? We have been asking that question for centuries, and the best we've come up with is the margins of society. Anything out of sight. How does a simple question of how to keep safe, how to help, turn into isolation and punishment? The biggest problem I've seen is status quo thinking. Untreated severe mental illness only affects 5.6% of the adult population. And it's how we treat those in the minority that reveals the true nature of the majority. It's time we realized that that 5.6% of us is us and reframe the question. If I should lose insight to reality, where is the best place for me to go? I think that they do have a clear job and their job is justified by so much wrong and evil we see in this world. We do see wrong in our everyday lives, but how much of it could be prevented or even healed? Even though crime dramas dominate our imagination and streaming services, we are more likely to encounter psychosis than murder. But we've built a criminal system that cannot tell the difference. But I think we've got to fine-tune some sort of analysis. Who gets to do the fine-tuning? Moments of fear have the potential to affect us for a lifetime. And this family's fear, when they look down and discover a baby no longer in the stroller, should not be dismissed. Indeed, it's terrifying. But when all those moments make a complete picture, can't we, the well ones, make sense and justice? of what happened in reality versus in our heads. Why is Alachi the only one expected to be emotionally perfect? I think it does start with your personal individual story, right? And how it might intersect with someone else's. I believe traditional publishing is like a really difficult industry. There's this notion I think I saw that I think translates in a lot of things when we talk about compassion and we talk about releasing stigma. And there was a certain point that people were discussing diversity in the book world. And they were saying, oh, well, white editors just can't relate. I saw that. (laughs) Yeah, can't relate to the story. And, you know, I was taken aback about just how many books that I've read where it had absolutely nothing to do with my story or my path in life, but I loved it because it was beautiful. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. I understood understood that person's world and their, their empathy and everything about it. Storytelling is vital. But when I became an advocate, I did not understand why I had to relive my family's worst day for lawmakers and stakeholders. But a part of being marginalized is having your story edited to benefit the status quo narrative. Storytelling is advocacy, a direct connection to empathy, compassion, and truth. Because it shouldn't be 
Like, well, if you can't do it the way I do it, then you don't get to do it at all. That's I, right. And I understand that my path has been enhanced because of like various factors that not everyone has. Right. So I was able to get on the right medication and recover and then begin to stack these layers of my life like back up again. Mm-hmm. Now, so for someone who has not found the right medication, that's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be hard. That's a very big part of it. You have a really good safety net and it's uh, a good support system, I should say. And the fact that you are able to use your voice and have a voice and be brave enough to share your story. Thank you. Just because that's really something to do. You getting back out here. And I really am grateful that you have been able to have that journey. In spite of a very public event. In spite of being incarcerated and forced to feel shame for her medical diagnosis, Alachi continues to make lawmakers allies. And I imagine some adversaries hear her. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I really enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to talk anytime. Yes. If there was any last message you can tell. No last message, but I just hope that the people that are hearing this, especially the people that have psychosis, is like you can, you can live a real life. Jail is no place for a person with mental illness. Let's adapt restorative justice practices so they can be inclusive of our loved ones and members of our community struggling with psychosis and other serious symptoms that can drive them to do what they would never do if not for the illness. Handcuffs don't heal. To change the narrative, change the question. Instead of asking, where should these people go when their illness makes them do harm? Ask, what would I want people to do if it was my loved one whose future was in the balance? The question is not what is the best place for someone else. It's what would be the best place for me. Make them hear you by advocating for restorative justice practices in your community. Support elected officials who understand healthy communities begin with resources for the most marginalized especially when incarcerated with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. Thank you for joining us on Make Them Hear You. Until next time, only good things. Treatment Advocacy Center is a national nonprofit organization that helps protect families affected by severe mental illness against a health care and legal system stacked against them. For more information, resources, or to get involved, please visit our website at www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org.